Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Dan Duran. Dan is a physician executive with deep expertise in health system administration, digital health, population health management, and value-based contracting. Dan leads innovation and research for LifeBridge Health, which is a $2.5 billion health system based in Maryland, serving over a million patients. He's currently accountable for overseeing all of LifeBridge's projects, investments, and partnerships related to biomedical research, digital health, and value-based contracting. And I've been fortunate to get to know Dan over the past few years as a partner of our Diffusion Studios team at Osmosis. And in fact, he was the one who worked with us in the first place to develop everything from a video on COVID manifestations on x-ray, chest x-ray, to a video on how we can all band together to beat coronavirus by flattening the curve and raising the line. So Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Shiv. It's great to be here. So can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what led you to pursue a career within medicine and then specifically radiology and innovation? Sure, absolutely. I, I attribute my interest in medicine to the fact that my mother was a biology, a biology teacher and my dad was an engineer. And so I was from a pretty early age, interested in things like medical devices and biomedical engineering. And if anything, it took me a while to figure out that I initially wanted to focus on clinical medicine versus either biomedical policy or the more hardcore fundamental biomedical sciences. But eventually, uh, in, in the process of doing some research during medical school, I really fell in love with imaging as a non-invasive way of understanding the biology of how a system works and also determining the impact of certain stressors or diseases or therapies. And for that reason, went into radiology and spent uh, the first part of my career really training in radiology and practicing as a radiologist, as a junior faculty member and instructor at Hopkins. And radiology is a really wonderful field because you're almost entirely immersed in digital medicine. This is back 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, but for a diagnostic radiologist back then, really, we were at the forefront of the digitization of medicine, so structuring the data and experiencing an environment that was as digital as it was real in a way, right? I mean, if you're a radiologist and you're practicing from the year 2000 forward, you're really reviewing massive amounts of biological information visually, and it's all in this sort of voxel-based 3D digital universe. And the diagnostic potential is very powerful. One of the things I noticed in med school is that is how most diagnoses at least began or were made. That's, that's why I chose radiology. And radiology kind of led me to the importance of technology within healthcare and also the importance of things outside of technology, such as different ways of paying for healthcare that will ultimately, I think, help us deliver better care. So we've actually had other radiologists who are very well-known in the field and innovative people like Vivian Lee, who's the president of Verily, as you know, and was the head of University of Utah Health System. So I think there is something to be said for people who go into radiology and, and are technologists and innovative like yourself. Can you start? Can you tell us a bit about LifeBridge Health and your role as chief innovation officer? What are some of the things that you've, you're most proud of in, in that role? And then also, uh, we'll get into COVID and how LifeBridge has, has adjusted because of COVID. Absolutely. Well, LifeBridge is a health system in Maryland. We are, I believe, the fourth largest after Hopkins, University of Maryland, and MedStar Health. We have five hospitals, but we're quite a bit bigger than you'd anticipate just based on the five hospitals because we're really a continuum-based health system. 
So unlike a lot of systems that have many hospitals spread across wide geographies, we have five hospitals in a pretty compact geography, and we also have a great deal of cross-continuum assets like urgent cares, health clubs, nursing homes, aging in place facilities, retail pharmacies, imaging, etc. And so we really try to go in a pretty tight footprint in an important part of the state, which is the northwest quadrant of Baltimore, stretching towards Pennsylvania to the north and towards D.C. to the southwest. Uh, we try to go very deep in those areas and have really lasting and longitudinal relationships with patients where we're really trying to optimize their health and get to know them. And if anything, keep them out of our hospitals as much as possible. So, so that's kind of who LifeBridge is. I mean, I could describe in terms of revenue or number of physicians, but it's really a mindset about using the full continuum of care and not necessarily starting with the hospitals, but certainly including the hospitals to deliver better health to populations. Definitely. We've seen how nimble LifeBridge has been over the past few years getting to know you all. So let's transition into COVID and how how that's affected everything from, I think you guys were among the first, if not the first in Maryland to do drive-through testing. I know the vaccine just recently got, two vaccines recently got approved. So we'd love to hear, you know, how LifeBridge and you have been adjusting to COVID. Absolutely. COVID has been this force within healthcare, but kind of external to the healthcare industry, right? I mean, it's literally a force of nature and it's acting as a catalyst for so many different types of innovation. And a lot of it, I think, will resemble what happened at different points in history. For example, like the Civil War or World War II. I mean, typically it's these jarring events that necessitate innovation and then wind up leading to breakthroughs and things that stay with us. And so I think a lot of that has happened with COVID and I'm not certainly not representing it's uniquely happened at LifeBridge, but like a lot of health systems, we've been in this crucible trying to figure out how to provide healthcare to our communities up against a disease that we didn't understand very well in February, but I think we understand a lot better now. Early on in the pandemic, like most, we were faced with an incoming wave of unknown number of patients and a disease that at the time had sort of a myriad of potential ways it could be transmitted, but not a lot that was empirically known. And so personal protective equipment and demands for it went through the roof because essentially everybody in the facility wanted to be appropriately protected. And at the same time, as as everybody knows, the supply chain was disrupted, not just by that demand surge, but also by the supply issues resulting from China and the lockdowns in China having been the origin in a way of the COVID crisis and early 2020. And so those two things coinciding throughout much of March and April left health systems in the U.S. scrambling across the gray and black market in an industry that has a very, almost an overly formal and pretty normally boring supply chain side to it. All of a sudden, this was completely disrupted and people were scrambling for personal protective equipment. And like a lot of places, LifeBridge began tackling that problem by thinking, well, we may have to make it ourselves. And because it was the act of doing something new well, which is often how I explain innovation to, to the executives and board members and faculty at, at LifeBridge, they, they tapped innovation along with a supply chain and a few other groups and said, innovation, if we're going to have to make things that we've never made before, you need to figure out how to do this. And it, it kicked us into two parallel streams. One stream involved really thinking about how we would produce it locally figuring out who had sewing skills, figuring out what masks were made of, figuring out how to buy sewing machines and source material, all of which we were trying to do in very short order. 
And that, that effort, you know, because it had so much, I think, emotion and necessity behind it proceeded remarkably well. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the internal mass building effort. For example, we electrified an 18,000 square foot space to serve as our factory over a weekend. I mean, that, that type of project never happens that quickly in healthcare and made it safe and, and, and climate controlled for the workers and also obtained a hundred sewing machines from a manufacturer before they sold out along with a lot of surgical grade material to make masks and gowns out of. And all of this started making its way to Baltimore, but on a parallel part of, of the exercise, because innovators are so often doing things that are so outside of their 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 chosen field or or their actual kind of formal education i've just adopted a very humble mindset you know within medicine and innovation and i'm usually pretty acutely aware of everything i don't know and in this instance it really felt like we were flying very blind like we were going to try to start a garment factory in a country where we haven't had a lot of these for a couple hundred years or about a hundred years. And so I called up my CEO and I said, you know, do you know anybody who actually knows something about garments? Because why don't we start by talking with them? Maybe someone who used to outsource this stuff or used to even have their own factory. And he kind of went through his Rolodex and went through the board members Rolodex and one conversation led to another in kind of a circle. And before we knew it, we were talking with the global SVP of materials innovation for Under Armour, a guy named Randy Harward. And Randy was based here in Baltimore, and he was leading the Under Armour effort to go at the same problem. And they were coming at it from perhaps a lot less familiarity with things like OSHA requirements you know, for, for healthcare workers and infection control parameters and, and JCO requirements. But man, they know how to make things, right? So the material sourcing part of it and the design of it and the cutting of the material and all those things that were slowing us down, those were second nature to them. And, you know, there are a lot of chapters of this story, but ultimately wound up with LifeBridge was unique in the health systems that partnered with Under Armour initially because we said, listen, we can work with you on what is easiest for you to make a lot of that we also believe will be better than nothing. So we're not going to make the perfect the enemy of the good. We'll mass produce a mask that goes on everybody's face that doesn't need an N95 because we couldn't get enough surgical grade masks at the time and to, to cover all those extra individuals. And before there was a masking mandate in our state, this allowed us to have everybody in our facility masked one way or the other, which we now know is a big deal. But back then, was, it was much murkier. And what we did for Life, what LifeBridge did for Under Armour is they were in a great spot to sort of source material and cut it. They had a great machine to cut it but they weren't in a great spot to, to do the assembly part of it. And so we took that factory type environment we had set up in one of our outpatient centers, which we initially thought would be used to build masks literally from whole cloth. And instead, Under Armour did all the sourcing and the cutting and they brought it there. And we assembled masks for us, but we also shared many of those masks with our other health systems and other types of healthcare workers, such as nursing home workers. And eventually, eventually it was such a productive model. We were able to make 15,000 masks per day at peak production that other health systems adopted the same model where, where Under Armour would cut and source for them and deliver. And then they would sort of complete, they would finish the good and then hand it out to their employees. So that was one of the things we were up to in COVID. <laughs> there have been a lot of other little things we've been up to in COVID, but that was probably the most characteristically COVID, characteristically 2020, characteristically uh, innovation, because it was so far outside of what we normally do in a health system. 
So, yeah, I've, I've definitely been impressed when I saw the Under Armour LifeBridge collaboration. And, and certainly you've built a great team of people who are very innovative, people like Prothic Chatterjee, who I've also gotten a chance to know and have helped lead some of those efforts too. Fast forward nine months from when COVID became very a very big problem here in the U.S. and it's still a big problem. Now we have vaccines. Do you mind talking a bit about how LifeBridge is thinking about vaccine distribution? Well, LifeBridge is thinking about it, I think, the same way that most healthcare providers are. The initial days of the vaccine are, are finally here. It's, it's been shipping and initial folks are starting to get vaccinated. But obviously, the supply is dwarfed by the demand currently and will be for the foreseeable future. And so a lot of the work, and this has been preparation that's been going on for months, has been really with ethical committees, uh, along with operational committees from the hospitals, thinking through what is the subset of human beings that ought to get this vaccine first? You know, what is the best for society? Because it really is a scarce good. And people hate the word, but clearly there's kind of some ethical rationing going on here. And the first groups of people to get it will be those who are at very, very high risk of having a bad outcome from COVID, such as folks in a nursing home or immunosuppressed, et cetera. And healthcare providers that need to be present for us to uh, withstand this ongoing surge, which may continue to get worse and worse as the weather gets colder. This is kind of a raging fire, unfortunately, of infection across the country right now. And the vaccine is like the equivalent of so much water, but really not enough right now to really hold it at bay. So it's really, really important that healthcare workers be protected. And within healthcare systems, we, we certainly don't have enough to vaccinate everybody we'd like to. So we were really thinking about those frontline staff, ICU nurses, ER nurses, ER physicians, ICU physicians, transporters, people that come into direct contact with the most COVID patients are going to be at the front lines of getting the vaccine. And everybody's dealing with this. You know, innovation and, and our research department has helped a bit in terms of the thinking through the logistics of distribution. But truthfully, while the vaccine technology is different, the idea about injecting the vaccine into somebody's arm is pretty standard pharmacy occupational health workflows. The wrinkle with this one, of course, is the very cold storage requirements. Our system, like a lot of forward-thinking systems, saw this coming you know, during the summer based on advice we had and, and research we did and obtained. Uh, we're able to actually obtain these now scarce cold storage freezers to hold the vaccine in our pharmacy department. So we're in a, in good shape on that. Where innovation is focusing right now is, is on the tail end of this process, which is using our mobile patient engagement applications, put these in on the phones and in the hands of the folks who get the vaccine and really monitor them for side effects at the same time as we remind them that they are not yet Im immune and take a variety of different interventions to ensure that they do come in for that second shot. And also... These vaccines don't actually necessarily make you immune. They make you resistant to having a bad outcome from the disease. And so folks who get the vaccine may still be asymptomatic spreaders. And the digital content we've created for these patient mobile engagement applications drive home that point, both by surveying every day after the shot for side effects, but reminding folks that they need to continue to social distance, sanitize, wear masks, etc. And really, they make sure that person gets in for that second shot. There is nothing more potentially wasteful in this time in history than someone getting one COVID, va COVID vaccine shot and not following up with the second shot, considering how many people are going to go unvaccinated in the coming months based on the short supply. That, that's really, really great considerations for, for how you all are rolling out the vaccines and some important reminders for our audience about what, what these vaccines mean or don't mean for, for immunity. 
So I know we're coming up on time. So, I mean, Dan, you're, you've certainly been a, a force of nature, both within practicing medicine, radiology, as well as innovation. I know a lot of our audience at Osmosis would, would benefit from learning uh, or hearing your advice for them if they're considering or already are on their way to becoming healthcare professionals. What advice would you leave them with about meeting the moment of COVID and beyond? I think it's already been widely reported that the world and the and the nation is in love with Dr. Fauci and, and applications to med schools are through the roof. So that's really exciting as a medical professional to hear. I mean, whether it's all due to this Fauci effect or just a reminder, you know, how important and how reliant society is on physicians. It's been an interesting year that way. I hesitate to say a, a great year that way because there's been so much tragedy this year, but there's a silver lining to everything. And so if folks are considering medicine and they wouldn't be for, it's, it's great news because that interest appears to be driven by what you can accomplish versus things like societal status or how much money you can make. <laughs> and I think it's important in medicine to come into it for the right reason, because it is a long road. For those of us like myself, I mentioned my parents were a biology teacher and an engineer, so I didn't have any doctors in the family. I definitely didn't understand how many years it took before I got involved in it. And there were times during the education process where I was just kind of shaking my head saying, when do I, you know, when, when do I get to practice and be autonomous? So there's, there's, there's sacrifice in this field, but at the end of it, there is the rare opportunity to do good, to do well (laughs) while doing good. And there aren't a ton of fields where you can feel that as purely as you do in medicine. My, my words of encouragement are go into it for the right values and never abandon those values and kind of try to live those values every day. Well, that's some excellent advice to close on. So Dan, I mean, thanks so much, not only for taking the time to be with us on the Raise Line podcast, but more importantly for work, the work that you are actually doing to raise line and improve both healthcare system capacity and quality. Thank you, Shiv. And thanks for all the great work that Osmosis has done, uh, both, both with LifeBridge and, and our projects together. But just more generally, I know a lot of folks that rely on the content you all produce, and it's excellent. So thank you for that. Really appreciate that. And so with that, I'm Shiv Gaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.